The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff. I'm the Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary and your podcast host. And I have with me in the studio President Emeritus, Dr. Joseph A. Piper, Jr. Dr. Piper, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Zach. It's always good to do this. This is our first interview uh, with Dr. Piper since he has become President Emeritus, entering into this new role as a full-time professor of systematic and applied theology. His course load will remain unchanged, but his administrative duties have uh, significantly lessened, and we're looking forward to see some products of his pen coming out in the next couple of years as he wraps up some writing projects which have been long-standing and uh, somewhat more or less on hold due to his role as president in the past. Dr. Piper, before we dive into these questions, would you please pray for our time together? I would love to. Gracious and glorious God in heaven, Father, Son, and Spirit, we come before you with love and adoration, with hope and confidence, for you indeed are our God, and our Redeemer. You, Lord, are our husband and our maker. We thank you that uh, you love your church and you have revealed your mind to your church through the scriptures and given us the spirit who indwells us to enable us to understand the scriptures. For, Lord, we cannot profit on our own. We must have that work of the spirit, and we ask that you would grant his ministry to us now as we think through uh, these series of questions, that we'll be able to give uh, clear, biblical, and useful answers. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Piper. Our first question is with regards to the 48th General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America, which was to be held this year in Birmingham, Alabama, but has actually been postponed to next year, 2021, where it will be conducted in St. Louis, Missouri. And though we're not really close to the time, this is a good question to ask and to begin thinking about, particularly in light of some other news that's going to be uh, coming down the pike this week. And so we are fielding this question from ruling elder Ross Harris of Fort Wayne, Indiana. And he asks, our small PCA congregation in Indiana can't afford for me to go to GA as a commissioner. We are barely able to send our teaching elder. Thankfully, I am employed by one of the exhibitors and my company will be paying for my travel and housing for General Assembly. I am an ordained ruling elder in the PCA and I will be attending General Assembly, but at this point, I am not being sent as a commissioner. Ethically, do I have to pay the registration fee to vote? I know this is something that has been discussed on the podcast before, but I don't remember there being any definitive statement made. Ross, thank you very much for the question. <clears throat> we are very concerned about getting our ruling elders more involved in the assembly. It's very much a uh, clerical minister, ministerial fraternity, uh, and I think that the reason the denomination at that level has made some decisions it's made is because of the absence of uh, ruling elders. So it's very important that we get our ruling elders there. Um, I would think that if you have those other expenses paid for, that there'd be any number of ways that we could uh, make sure that your uh, 
registration fee is covered, so you wouldn't have to come to this dilemma of being there, registering, but not paying the fee uh, to vote. I have said in the past that I think that it is not ethical that the assembly would not allow a ruling elder to vote or a pastor if the church couldn't pay. Um, on the other hand, it is a, a law, a statute that the assembly has voted on and agreed to. So as I have reflected on my further response, uh, show up and vote regardless, uh, that's probably not the wisest way to uh, do it or to think about it. I believe that the assembly has a provision now that if your church is in this category with your budget being a certain level, you could actually only have to pay 200 and something dollars rather than the 450, whatever it is. So there are provisions for you. I would think your church could probably do that for you and your pastor. Um, and we as presbyters need to be working together. I don't know when Zach's going to make his announcement, but there's some very good things that are happening. We've had people contact the seminary about making money available, and that actually has snowballed now. And so I think by next year, we're going to be in a position to get a lot of ruling elders to the uh, General Assembly, which is very important that we get them to the General Assembly in uh, St. Louis. Um, for me, the, uh, the real solution now lies in going to a delegated assembly. And I think that it's important that we do this because it's the only way that uh, we're, all of our churches can be heard. That might sound strange. But in fact, at, at this point, with 1,300 people there, um, the voice of many is not heard, particularly the voice of our small churches and our ruling elders. If we went to a delegated assembly, we would guarantee an equal representation from each presbytery. It could be guaranteed that no presbytery could, in fact, uh, stack it. It could be worked out that it has to take place on an uh, alphabetical rotation. And we could then have honest debate that could take more than five-minute sound bites. So I think that's something that we should pray for and work for. Uh, in the time being, I guess my rebellious spirit has toned down a bit, Ross. And so I think because the assembly has voted this until we can get them to stop voting and requiring this, there's another fee that is voluntary that ministers are asked to pay above their $450. And I uh, do not feel obligated to, uh, to pay that whatsoever. I was under the impression that a particular presbytery in the denomination had once again put up an overture to reduce the cost of ruling elder commissioner registration fees. I can't find it right now on the PCAAC.org uh, website and the PCAGA.org website. But um, I think that there are at least overtures in the works, maybe at the presbytery level, to bring before the 48th General Assembly to reduce 
the, the burden of cost, particularly for ruling elders, in order to encourage increased attendance of ruling elders. Uh, being an exhibitor myself and overseeing the seminary's investment in PCA GA exposure, I, I know firsthand how much goes into it on the part of the administrative committee and the way they conduct uh, the assembly is very expensive, for better or for worse, and they do everything in their power to, to raise the funds to cover the cost of it. And so I, I always commend the administrative committee's work, particularly the folks who are responsible for executing the vision handed down to them by the General Assembly. But what Dr. Pipe is alluding to when he talks about a big announcement this week is it's been anticipated already at moreinthepca.org, a website committed uh, to an organization committed to getting ruling elders, more orthodox ruling elders, M-O-R-E, to the PCA General Assembly and in, even involved in the courts of the church, the lower courts, the presbyteries and, and sessional courts. And um, what Mr. Nave, the executive director of this organization, has already published is the launch of a campaign, More at GA, which is committed wholly unto un getting at least 100 fresh new ruling elders, uh, what I mean by that is men who have not been to GA before wouldn't be able to go otherwise to get them to GA by providing them financial subsidy. And that includes the registration fee, travel, lodging, whatever it is that they actually need. And so there's an application in the works that will be posted this week, and I intend to interview Charlie as well as another gentleman um, later this week on, on these very matters. So stay tuned for that. I think that this is a good thing uh, to express our conviction in the PCA that there is a parity between um, ruling elders and teaching elders because they occupy the same office just with different functions. And I'm I'm excited to see what well, General this Assembly might bear. does not have a different function. Yeah, General, General Assembly is the same function. The same function. the same function. This is right. And in this the session, right. it's the same function. Only in the pulpit. Yep. Was there is there a different uh, function? This really really must be addressed. And we'll we'll pray for this and do what we can to to encourage the ruling elder participation. Yes, and I commend uh, to you, Ross, and any other ruling elders listening, to check out more in the PCA.org. Whether you need help or not, it, it's probably something you'd be interested in scoping out and perhaps even supporting yourself. Yeah, if some of our hearers don't need help, they can give help. Exactly. And the vetting process is going to be thorough and 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 really above board. I'm excited to, uh, about what those men are doing. And if some of our wealthier churches that have helped men in the past can actually put in their budget contribution to this as well, and we can get uh, uh, it'd be great to have a hundred extra ruling elders at General Assembly. Oh yeah. Uh, this dovetails nicely into our next question, Dr. Piper, coming from outside the PCA, from ARP Pastor Benjamin Glazer of Clover, South Carolina. Always good to hear from you, Ben. He asks, would Dr. Piper explain the practical and biblical differences between the two-office and three-office views? And then he has a, a, a second question <laughs> that I think will be a little bit more fun to address, but this is a good one to, to tackle. Good to hear from you, Benjamin. Let me give some background. Uh, in the visible church, uh, the two offices that are mentioned are elder and deacon. So, for example, in 1, Corinthians, uh, 1 Timothy 3, you've got the qualifications and some gifts for both of those uh, offices. Uh, the distinction between two and three is uh, that is there a functional distinction uh, within the office of elder? 
And on passages like uh, 1 Timothy 5, uh, many of us believe that there is a functional difference. Some now have gone to the uh, extent of saying that uh, there's no similarity, so to speak, uh, between a minister and a ruling elder. And so the three-office view in its more uh, traditional form is that you have uh, ministers of the gospel, you have ruling elders, and you have deacons. This would pretty much be what you would find in our Dutch Reformed uh, brethren churches and such as that. And in the, the descendants of Northern Presbyterians, you'd have much more of this in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Uh, whereas our Southern Presbyterian forebears not only exalted the office of deacon to its proper biblical standard or lifted it up, but they also wisely distinguished that in the office of elder, when it comes to rule, there is to be no distinction. Uh, the minister is not in any way superior to, uh, functionally even, to the uh, ruling elder. So the office of rule is in both offices. But the office of preaching, or the function of preaching, belongs then particularly to a man who has been set aside uh, to that office. Again, 1 Timothy 5, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 14. So the Southern Presbyterian view was that it's two offices with two functions, two ordinations in the office of elder. The two-office view, then, which you will find, particularly in some of our uh, soteriological Baptist uh, churches, is that there's one office of elder. Now, some elders are better educated or more gifted to do pulpit ministry, but they, um, uh, they still all have the same office. So that's, that's the three views. I think that biblically, as I've already alluded, that the... Uh, um, two office with two aspects of the office of elder is what is most uh, biblical. And this comes across then, we have another question, don't we, about the sacraments. We could probably just address that right here as well. Yeah, question 11. Yeah. So this comes through then with respect to uh, public worship. The only time that a what we in, in my denomination call a teaching elder, which is to show that uh, uh, we have this distinct function ordination to the pulpit ministry, um, this only is manifested in public worship. So that uh, as pastors in the congregation, as members of church courts, we all are equal. That's why a while ago uh, Zach mentioned parity. It's a very important part of Southern Presbyterianism that we have consciously uh, established all of our government, all of our committees, all of our commissions, that uh, we're always to have an equal amount of ruling and teaching elders. Once we get out of the local session, which obviously is not parity, but you have a majority usually of, of ruling elders. Uh, and so it's in public worship with the act of preaching that the, the teaching note has been ordained to do that. But because the sacraments are, in fact, the visible preaching of the Word of God, we've always recognized that they also should be 
administered, not served, but administered by uh, the teaching elder. So basically we would say that uh, the preaching and the uh, administration of the sacraments and the benediction, which is again an act of God speaking authoritatively to the people, uh, would be the function of the uh, teaching elders. So Joe from Hattiesburg, what are your thoughts on ruling elders administering the sacraments specifically within the PCA context? I have in mind ruling elders have been licensed to preach by their presbytery. Now, let me answer, clarify that last part. Um, normal licensure is a step to ordination, but recognizing that some ruling elders do have preaching gifts, they may be licensed to exhort, to use the technical term, and which means that we can comfortably put them into our pulpits, either as a pulpit supply or uh, to help out in the church if a pastor is sick or whatever. Whereas, again, in, say, the Dutch Reformed churches, the elder can only read a sermon. Uh, we have ruling elders that we believe have the gift. So, but that licensure to exhort is not ordination, and thus it does not, uh, their preaching does not have the same authority as that of the uh, ordained teaching elder, and uh, it does not open up to them the other responsibilities of that office. And so, ruling elders should not be administering the sacrament. That's not serving the sacrament. Ruling elders must serve the sacrament because they're to help fence the table. They know who is under discipline, who is allowed to come, who should not be coming. But in terms of the what we call the table service, uh, the institution, the explanation, the warnings, the prayers of consecration, all of that should be performed uh, by uh, the man who's been set aside to uh, preach the word of God. Um, the second part of Joe's question is some resources for further study and I would recommend uh, looking at uh, Dabney's uh, works and Thornwell, particularly on this whole issue uh, of uh, the distinct function of the uh, elder who preaches, but only in that act of preaching. So now, that would be volume four of Thornwell's works, the Ecclesiology volume. Yeah, that's a very good volume. And for Dabney, would that be within his discussion of sacraments or in evangelical eloquence, his lectures on preaching? No, it would be preaching? in the discussions one or two because he's also involved in debates with yeah. Northern Presbyterians on, on that issue. But I missed that. I didn't look it up ahead of time. We can do more in the future uh, with that, since you offered us bonus points. What, what do those bonus points bring with him, Joe? I'd love to know. Um, maybe an expense-paid trip to uh, Hattiesburg. Uh, it's one lovely of, one in of the winters. One of my favorite towns. And a blessed town with three very good PCA churches and some very fine uh, preaching now in those churches. Um, I'm a bit scrambled today. I think I'm tired and I realize, so... You guys might want to follow up on that. Now, in connection with Ben's question about two office and three office, would Dr. Pipe explain his comment concerning his dislike of the title reverend? I think the title separates the teaching 
elder too much from the, his brother elders. Um, there's nothing reverend about the minister of the gospel when he's a member of the congregation or within the congregation or interacting with other elders. In the pulpit, there is an authority, an authority that uh, adheres to him in his task that he's doing. But outside the pulpit, I don't see uh, any biblical reason to uh, s distinguish that man uh, from the other elders by the titled reverend. So you're not going to hear me use it. Occasionally I will use it simply because I don't know what else to do in that particular circumstance. <laughs> but uh, I would prefer uh, to be called, if I were pastor, a pastor, not by my first name, but Pastor Piper. <laughs> um, you don't want to be PJ? You're in trouble already. <laughs> We, we should Remember, mention, you've actually. you got to teach, treat me with respect. This is true. This is true. This is Dr. Pipa. That is how I refer to him. That is how I address the man sitting across the table from me. But one correction, sir. You are a pastor now. You have been called by our presbytery, organizing pastor of Antioch Presbyterian Church Mission Work of Calvary Presbytery here in Woodruff, South Carolina. I should have mentioned that at the head of the podcast. That's right. We, we would really appreciate uh, all of our friends uh, praying for this enterprise. I often wonder what in the world I'm doing. But uh, since they took all my preaching away from me at the seminary, I thought, well, I could preach somewhere. He gave it up at the seminary. No one took it from I him. <laughs> um, I don't need anyone reading into that. No, comment. you're right. Yes, that was, uh, it was voluntary. I thought that the, I designed this office of president. The president preaches. Yeah. And I think the president should preach. Uh, at the chapel of the seminary. But I also had cut back my pulpit supply work just doing conferences, primarily. So there was a church that uh, basically had died, and uh, Zach and I offered uh, to come in and uh, try to, if they want to go to mission status. I, I did this in Texas, and it uh, God blessed it. So the congregation voted uh, to disband and to go to mission status. They have dispersed. They're in other churches. So basically, we've been given uh, a year uh, with a building, uh, and we've got a group of core people that want to come with us right off, mostly at this point students uh, with large families. Uh, but uh, we're going to be doing the parish evangelism, really trying to work the neighborhoods. I just drove this past Thursday afternoon from the church back in toward town. I could not believe, even since we were out there last all the new houses they're going to put in. It's Hundreds. amazing. I, I did a significant amount of demographic work with the help of a church planter friend of mine up in the Philadelphia area who knew of some resources. And um, the census tracts around this church are not just above average for the county, but are way above average um, for the county going back two census cycles. So all the way back to 2000. And what we're really hoping for and what we're asking our friends to pray for is for the Lord to bless, to fill this historic little chapel, uh, Antioch Presbyterian Church in Woodruff, South Carolina, with folks from the neighborhoods, uh, from these new subdivisions that are going up, from the established subdivisions, which are right around there, that we would have another um, old school uh, Bible preaching, Christ exalting, evangelistic, uh, discipleship focused PCA congregation 
thriving here in the upstate, really on the the eastern edge of Greenville County and, and western edge of Spartanburg County. Um, between where the church is and where the next closest town, Woodruff, is, uh, there's there's no there's no other uh, really Reformed church presence. And so we're excited about this opportunity, and we're thankful for the presbytery um, really exercising a great deal of leadership and vision in commissioning Dr. Piper to do this and sending him forth as an organizing pastor. And I'm excited to be helping him in it. So, yes, I'm very glad. Uh, I couldn't do this if Zach weren't helping me. He'll be a formal ministerial intern, more than simply an intern, though. He's more of a partner in this. Uh, He'll be doing a lot of the logistical things as he already has with some of the preaching. Uh, we're going to start with an a afternoon service so people with children can keep them in their Sunday schools till we have a sufficient number of people to run a Sunday school as well. Uh, and when we get to that, when we have two services, and right now I'll preach three times a month, Zach will preach once a month. When we go to uh, two services, then he will do a morning and evening service. I might do an evening service, and then we'll start working interns in. Um, and those other slots uh, as well. I've done this with students before in California, and uh, it, God blessed it there, and it worked really well. So we're excited to see what God will do. Uh, we want to see a, a lot of conversions and a Reformed Church. This is one of the probably the five, fourth or fifth oldest church in the Presbyterian. Yeah. yeah. The uh, gentleman that... Uh, was instrumental in its uh, it had one other restart name was Benjamin Palmer Reed his father lived uh, with Benjamin Palmer uh, when he was a student I guess that's amazing that's history right there and there is a churchyard with Revolutionary War veteran buried in the churchyard and my wife started doing research on some of these people some remarkable people buried there in that Revolutionary and Confederate Mm -hmm. soldiers and uh, there's a there's a just a grand obelisk uh, monument to to a number of slaves which were buried in the churchyard, uh, but whose markers had been either stolen or or, right. or, or removed. And it's actually the most impressive um, marker in the cemetery. This gigantic obelisk in one corner where the slaves were. Well, people don't buried. realize this that slaves were members of the Southern of the church. Presbyterian yeah. Church. Yeah. They were communing members. They were catechized in, in most of the congregations. And then with Jirado, they were elders. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay, well, setting that issue aside, thank you for the questions, Ben. Always good to hear from you, brother. And if there's any follow-ups on that, please send them our way. And expect to hear about Antioch Presbyterian Church here and there, just as we draw from our own experience and answering uh, subsequent questions in the future. Our next uh, question comes from Dustin Kreider of Tennessee, and he asks about the um, republication issue. He says, does the Mosaic Covenant republish the covenant of works? If so, please briefly describe the nature of the republication, incorporating relevant statements from the Westminster standards. And uh, some of you are already well aware, but in case you're new to the podcast, you might not know that we have addressed variants of this question in the past. We're happy to continue addressing them as this is a, a a current issue, uh, a major theological issue, particularly in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in relation to the teachings of Meredith Klein, and one with which Dr. Piper, I think I can say, has a, a great deal of familiarity with. Well, 
there are three approaches to the role of the law of God in the Mosaic Covenant. And a lot of this uh, comes out of uh, God's uh, commandment and promise with respect to the law, uh, do this and live. Uh, Leviticus 18.5, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. Now, Professor Murray and Dr. Robertson say this is merely a promise with respect to sanctification, which is a true promise, and that we have uh, an abundant, blessed life as we seek to, in the covenant, serve God according to his law. And that's been a, a view throughout the history of uh, covenant theology. A uh, great majority of the Puritans and uh, the Reformed Orthodox took the approach that there was a restatement of the covenant of works within the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, that it's a true principle uh, because when God has declared something, uh, it doesn't change. And so Adam, by perfect obedience, would have had eternal life for himself and us. Well, that, that principle remains. Um, in fact, it's necessary. If you want eternal life, you must obey the law of God perfectly. And so uh, these writers, and I agree with them, you find this in Turretin and others, will say then that uh, there is this restatement of the covenant of works uh, within the Mosaic Covenant. Not that this is a way that people would get life, but in the fact this is the unchanging demand of God. And it's absolutely true. If anyone did obey the law of God perfectly, then he would have um, eternal life. So it's not proscriptive in the sense of do this because you can and you will live right. as, as it was with Adam, but it's more... Uh, indicative of God's perfect character right. and out of which the moral law flows. Right. Ian Murray's book on evangelism, Puritan evangelism, points out the fact that's what we should tell people. If you want eternal life, you've got to obey God perfectly. That was, that was the, the great Reformed message in times past. We need to make much more use of that today. So that's happening there. Now I add a wrinkle to that, and I think that it was also under that provision of the Mosaic Covenant that Christ fulfilled his mediatorial responsibilities in keeping the demands of the Adamic Covenant uh, and obey the law of God perfectly, and then the curse of the covenant, which is also there, that if you don't do these things, you're cursed, and cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so actually, it was the provisions were there mediatorially as well. Now, the third view is that of, of Dr. Klein, uh, and in a nutshell, although there's a lot of variances in this, but in a nutshell it is that in order to establish the principle of, uh, of merit, that uh, what God was doing in the Mosaic Covenant was repeating the covenant of works for the people to inherit the land. And thus, the Mosaic Covenant was not a covenant administration of the covenant of grace, it was a provisional covenant for the Old Covenant Church by which if they kept the covenant, they would inherit the land uh, in order to establish this principle of merit. 
And that has been sufficiently uh, debunked. The Orthodox Presbyterian Church, I think three years ago now, did a study paper. The first half of the report clearly shows the uh, exegetical and confessional errors of that position. Now, the second half is a bit confusing, and it's not clear. One of the writers tries to uh, establish uh, the principle that that Klein was not being understood, so that those that were teaching republication, uh, really that Klein had gone beyond them and wasn't saying that. I didn't find the second half very clear or helpful, and it's really not to the point. The doctrine itself that uh, the children of Israel would inherit the land on the basis of their covenant keeping, uh, and that was what was in the Mosaic uh, covenant, would be contrary to our, our standards, which teach us that there's uh, the covenant of grace was administered in the old covenant. It's the same covenant in substance, and it includes all of these various administrations. So in the uh, Confession of Faith, chapter 7, this uh, paragraph 5, this covenant was differently administered in the time of the law. And that's the, all of the Old Testament, including the Mosaic, and the time of the Gospel. Under the law, all the Old Testament, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which for that time, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and is called the Old Testament. That would be the sound statement with respect to the Mosaic Covenant. Now, one of uh, Dr. Klein's arguments was that there's no oath involved, but in fact, if you read, uh, particularly in the prophets, you'll find that there was an oath involved in giving them the land. Uh, and there were sacrifices involved for their sin, even when they entered the land at Mount Gerizim uh, and Mount uh, Ebal. Uh, the curses uh, had the, uh, the, uh, an altar for sacrifice, which was a clear statement that we know that we're not going to keep this law of God, and this is a gift of God given to us. So I would encourage you to read that OP, Orthodox Presbyterian Report, particularly the first half of it, to get a, a more thorough background. I have uh, a a paper that was given here at one of our conferences that I could send to somebody if they wanted to see that as well. And I believe that the deliverance of that paper where you where you recited it or read it or explained it uh, is available on Sermon Audio yes. from that same from conference, that conference on the law of God, which was, what was it? You know, it, was before, it? it was before I matriculated. I matriculated fall of 2015. So maybe it was... 2014. Yeah, spring of 2014 or 15. Well, whatever the case is, you put in Kleinian... Republication and uh, Dr. Piper's talk should populate. If you have trouble finding it, let me know. I'll try to put it in the show notes for this podcast as well. Thank you for the question, Dustin. Our next inquiry comes from Virginia Canuto of Brazil. Always a pleasure to hear from you, Virginia. Is the word son in Joshua 7.19 and Luke 16.25 used in the covenant sense, as in son of the covenant? 
In Luke 16.25, the rich man was in torture and condemned in hell, even though Father Abraham called him son. In Joshua 7.19, God disciplines Achan and his family with a death sentence for Achan's disobedience. Did these individuals die as believers, and did their souls go to heaven, or similarly to the rich man, did they go to Hades? How can we explain the use of the word son in these passages? Well, Virginia, that's an interesting question, and frankly, I had not thought about it until you asked the question. Obviously, it's a term of intimacy, uh, and that's the way I've always taken it, uh, particularly with Joshua. This is it's a term actually of affection. Uh, it's a term that it would include pleading. It, it held within it is the, con- is the concept of, of the possibility of repentance. We don't know about Achan, uh, whether he repented or not. Just because a, a person died under various punishments in the Old Covenant did not mean that they were unconverted. Now, as all as a whole, the nation, as Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 10, was in rebellion. Uh, but there's a, a section where somebody mentions uh, their father died, I guess it was the dollars of Zelophad, not for the sins of, of, the, of the people. They died in their own sin. Um, but it could be covenantal as well. Uh, he would have been a member of the covenant, and as such, it would have been not be improper to address him as a son. Uh, until someone apostatizes and they're in the covenant, they are considered to be uh, in the covenant, children of the covenant, and thus, uh, with Achan, I think that's uh, quite more plausible. Now, Dives in Hades... Uh, is no longer going to be a son of the covenant. Dives, but he is was a little back up, background since Dives doesn't appear in the text right. as such. That's a common moniker given to the rich man in the parable in Luke 16, and the word that uh, that's there in the Greek is technon. It's child, and it's not huios. It's not son. Right. Now, it's debatable whether or not that's significant, but it's worth mentioning here on the podcast. It's not the usual word for son. Well, it's John's word. I guess it is John's word. No, but we're I, in I Luke's wouldn't go gospel. that far. I would say though that he was at this point, even though he would be reprobate, he was still a child of Abraham. Yeah, and that's the point Terry Johnson makes in his book on the parables. He says Abraham is tender and answering the rich man, addressing him as child, but firm. Yes, you are one of my physical descendants, my child. Right. Yes, you f- practice a form of religion, and so on. Yeah, and I think that's important. And we understand then what Paul says in Romans 9, that not all who are of Israel are Israel, but they still uh, would have been in the covenant until they apostatized. He still would have been thought of as a, a child of Abraham. It's a comfort to us on the one hand of covenant succession, which is clear through Scripture. On the other hand, it's a warning uh, to us and to our children uh, that it's possible to be in the covenant and to apostatize. One of the things that we pray uh, for our grandchildren and all of our descendants is that not one would ever apostatize. That God would keep all of them, they'd be born again and keep all of them faithful. And my wife and I pray that just about every day. And I highly recommend, just as a side note here to any listeners, highly recommend Terry Johnson's book, The Parables of Jesus, Entering, Growing, Living, and Finishing in God's Kingdom. And then also uh, my my other favorite book on the parables is Gordon Ketty's excellent uh, work published by Evangelical Press. He spoke in parables. Both of these were very useful to me when teaching mm. a Sunday school. Well, that's right. On the you parables taught that course. Yes. With uh, one of our students here, Mark Guo. 
All right. Thank you, Virginia. Always, again, always a pleasure to hear from you. We're going to handle an anonymous question now uh, regarding qualifications for um, men seeking office in the ministry or even as ruling elders, but particularly for candidates for the ministry. And, and this is what our questioner asks. If a man is overweight, should he be disqualified from office as lacking in the biblical qualification of self-control? And if a candidate for ministry as a teaching elder is likewise overweight, should he be rejected for ordination until he demonstrates self-control in this area? It's a sensitive topic. I appreciate the questioner's desire to remain anonymous. And um, this is one that we're going to handle with some care. Yes, we will. Um, as a man who his entire adult life has wrestled uh, with weight, I'm quite sensitive to this. And I'm aware that some of the problems can come from uh, a lack of self-control. Uh, but the term itself is very ambiguous, as is anonymous. And um, we have to recognize that, uh, that God has not put a scale into our lives and say that we must way according to whatever modern medicine says is the proper range for your weight. Uh, fatness in the Bible is, in fact, is a, a sign of prosperity. Uh, so we can't set a standard and say, you know, that it's a certain level if a man looks overweight or he's fat or, or whatever. Uh, now, obesity would be a different issue. Uh, I think obesity can be a product not of necessarily lack of self-control, but uh, could be a, a hormonal and thyroid condition. Now, maybe not obesity, but overweight. So, Well, to be fair, uh, just interacting with my doctor, I notice on my electronic medical record I have access to that there's a threshold uh, into which you enter obesity, which isn't distinguished from being overweight. And so from a medical standpoint, and this is where the ambiguity of the term yeah. comes in, obesity is not different than being right, overweight. By obesity, I'm talking about... Morbidly obese. Morbid, yeah. Morbidly overweight. Where you're really threatening your health and, and your right. heart's functioning. So a, a person that would be at that level, again, um, where it's obvious that they have no self-control with respect to what they eat and when they eat, how much they eat, uh, that person needs to be encouraged uh, to uh, exercise a greater self-control. I encourage all of our students and any ministers that will listen to me to have an exercise program. Ours is a sedentary calling, and we need to be very active in that regard. I actually refer to my exercise program as my training program. I want to minister for many more years, even decades. And so th this is essential to, to doing that. So keep my weight within a certain area, make sure I'm doing my various uh, exercises and, and such. Um, it ties into other, other habits. Usually the person who's going to be undisciplined with respect to food, and for me that would be the issue, not as much the weight some people carry weight well, and as I said, we don't have the authority, just we don't want to set a, a, a maximum income that somebody should have or how many possessions they should have. We're not setting uh, standards on weight. But if someone is, in fact, abusing food, then I put that in the category of the person who abuses 
caffeine or tobacco or alcohol. Frequently, these things go together. Substance abuse, uh, the neglect or abuse of sleep, and the, the abuse of, of eating and food. But what I'm trying to say is that's where I would draw the line. Yeah. So that if a person, in fact, is clearly uh, abusing themselves by what they eat, that then becomes a matter, I think, of ministerial qualifications. We're to be controlled by no thing. Mm-hmm. So it's not the weight. It would be the habits that I think are very important. That's very helpful, Dr. Piper. And and I want to highlight again the frame of reference we have in the 21st century is wildly different than the biblical frame of reference in terms of fatness and, and frame and body shape and all of these things. Our culture is utterly obsessed with it and seeks to condemn and shame those who are even a little bit outside of the norm on these matters and sets up this unattainable standard for men and women in movies and TV shows and the like. And, uh, and, and the Bible speaks of the goodness of, of having that which the Lord you know, blesses you. And so uh, we want to take great care with this. It's a deeply sensitive pastoral issue and certainly one that, uh, that we don't want to trample anyone over. No, it basically gets down to what you weigh is a matter between you and God. Yeah. Since the Bible doesn't give us guidelines, but if it's from abuse. So, for example, I have no biblical problems with people that use tobacco. But the moment that that became an addiction, that, for me, would disqualify that person from, from ministry. So if he smoked in moderation, even cigarettes, which I despise cigarettes, but if a man used cigarettes in moderation, that's his liberty and would not disqualify him. Very good. Thank you, Dr. Piper. Our next question comes from Israel Montano of Mount Olive's Baptist Church. I don't have a, a place for Israel. Mount Olive. I guess he's at Mount Olive's Baptist Church. Okay, uh, but it's a good question. I've been hearing recently about the patriarchal view compared to the complementarian view in regards to men and women. I'm curious to know your thoughts on the patriarchy movement. It's definitely new to me, and from the onset, it sounds pretty extreme. Well, again, talking about ambiguous terms, we need to right. strictly yes, define Israel. what we're talking about here. Um, there, there is a, uh, a strand of patriarchy that is, in fact, uh, extreme and radical. It's tied into the radical homeschool, home church movement. Uh, it was coming uh, out of a man named Phillips in Texas, um, earlier uh, Gothard uh, had, had some of these same concepts. And where the, uh, the husband and father is the high priest of the family, he's the only one that can teach his wife and his children. Um, and uh, you've seen the expressions. But there's a biblical patriarchy. Now, I think that most complementarian, well, no, it used to be, a complementarian would have had a view of biblical patriarchy. That the man is the head of his family, uh, and he is to exercise that headship for the physical and spiritual well-being, first of his wife, uh, and then for his children. And for his wife, his patriarchy wasn't to uh, uh, suppress her or to beat her down. No, it was to be that exhibited by Christ, as Paul gives us the parallel in Ephesians chapter 5, Christ in his headship sacrificed himself for us and does everything in order to 
uh, make us his own and build us up in the faith. So that that would be the pattern that a husband ought to be exercising, living with his wife as a weaker vessel, knowing that she will, she'll be more frail. There'll be things that will, that will bother her that won't necessarily be rational at times. Uh, it's not an insult to say that she's a weaker vessel. It simply means she's more precious and is to be treated. I use it when I teach on that, the illustration of fine china. My wife has some really fine china that's getting passe these days, but we enjoy using it. Uh, I enjoy it because she won't let me wash the dishes. Uh, the fine china has to be handled by her because she doesn't trust me with it. And that's the idea of the, of the wife. She's precious and she's to be treated as um, a, someone who is, uh, is precious. And so I'm her head. Uh, at the end of the day, I must uh, ratify all decisions that we make. Now, we make those decisions through consultation unless it's something that must be done immediately. So you see Abraham, he didn't ask Sarah, do you feel like having company? He said, we've got these three guests and, and please cook a meal. That is probably the reference that um, um, the Scripture has in mind, when it, uh, Peter has in mind when it says that uh, she called him Lord. She responded to that uh, headship. Uh, but normally we would, uh, we're partners. This is a very important concept. We would discuss things. It's only when, uh, through discussion, we didn't agree that the husband must make that a decision at the end of the day. And he makes a decision that's for the best of the family. Um, great majority of the things, a sacrificial decision will be, well, we'll do it your way. You know, there's no issue here. She wants to go to the beach. You want to go to the mountains? You go to the beach. Uh, now, if it's a moral issue or a financial issue or something, and the husband has to make a decision, doesn't need to make it unilaterally. He must listen to his wife, but he still must make that um, decision. Now, together they exercise this headship with respect to their children. Uh, encourage all of you to get William Perkins' 10 volumes. In volume 10 that I had the privilege of co-editing, there's his treatise on the family. It was one of the first Puritan treatises on uh, the family. And he goes beyond, I think, biblically, where so many of our people are today. And that is the parents, the father in particular, but the parents must agree both to the spouse of the daughter but the spouse of the son as well, as well as their vocational choices uh, to help direct them in the directions that they should go. Now, when you say he goes beyond biblically, are you saying he's going beyond the Bible? No, I said he's, Bible, he's going he where people are today. He's being biblical. He's being biblical yes. in saying that you must have your parents' consent, right. both husband and wife for who right. are going to marry he goes, and also what that's where he, vocation to pursue. Yeah, and so and then there's there's ways to appeal that. I, I was on a session one time, and um, uh, the father was of the theological background that all remarriage was wrong after divorce, uh, and so he forbid his daughter to marry a man that actually was a deacon in our church. And um, I said, take it to the session. Which she did. It was very uncomfortable. I didn't, wasn't happy to do this, but the session did overrule and said, We think your father is acting on the basis of uh, improper biblical principles and we will give you permission to marry the man. There's still an exercise of authority there, 
in her case as well. A lot of folks would call that patriarchy and not complementarianism. Uh, but I'm, I'm convinced it's biblical. The numbers 30 is quite clear in terms of the relationship of a father to his daughter and then the husband to the daughter. Uh, and the Puritans address this in a number of things. So you'll find Baxter addressing it in cases uh, in the, his pastoral counseling book, Perkins, in cases of conscience. Uh, so we need to do some rethinking. Now, all the more so now as complementarianism is being attacked in some recent uh, books. Um, and it doesn't seem this biblical rationale. I mean, they pull, the writers pull uh, statements out of a contributor to the book, and they say it's wrong, but they don't yet critique it. And I don't agree with the statement the person made either, but there's not a biblical critique of it. It's simply this was wrong. And complementarianism is, uh, as it's been defined uh, in modern evangelical circles, is wrong. And, and we really need to get back to a much more robust uh, approach to uh, complementarianism in terms of the, the man's headship in the home, um, but as a partner with his wife who's a helper corresponding to his needs. Now, Dr. Piper, as, as we address Israel's question about the movements themselves and the, and the nomenclature of these movements, the words that we attach to these various and sundry things, um, the word complementarianism has, I think, wrongly but plausibly been tethered to uh, certain heretical teachings regarding the relationship between the father and the son in eternity. And again, I think that that is a, a wrong tethering. Uh, I think you can distinguish between complementarianism and what is called the eternal subordination of the son or eternal functional subordination of the son to the father. Uh, these are distinguishable things, even if there are people who subscribe to both that have been prominent figures. Likewise, patriarchy as a term right. has been, uh, in some people have argued, irrecoverably connected to the abuses, say, of Gothard, um, of, of Doug Phillips and, and some of these other guys, and, and even some men that are even now at work in public theology and, and trying to address families directly, even cir you know, circulating around uh, courts of the church and, and pastors and whatever. My question to you is, um, are these two terms worth and worthy of recovering and resuscitating, or should we abandon them either of them, both of them, whatever, and move on to something else? Well, what would something else be? Uh, that's, what I, that's what I keep on running up against, is what, what else could we use? Complementarianism just describes what it is. Men and women complement each other. Right. Husbands and wives complement each the other. The real issue underlying a lot of this is not because some have had a bad theological parallel, there is the economic subordination of the son. I think that's what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, that's not eternal, but economic. Economic. Yeah. So that as the God-man, when he came, but uh, a bad illustration or a bad exegetical proof doesn't disprove. I mean, the complementarianism is based on Genesis chapter 2. Yeah. Well, one of the real problems today is that people do not want to consider yeah. that there is what we would call a created ontological difference. Ontological means with respect to human nature, there's a created difference between men and women that goes beyond their sex parts 
or the fact one's a wife and bears children, one is a husband. Uh, and this is where the real pushback is taking. I think in um, some of the women in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, on the one hand, and in the Revoice people in the uh, PCA, in both cases, they, they seem to be wanting to get away. And this was uh, actually one of our graduates, uh, Peter Van Duty Ward, who pastors the OPC Church in town, brought this to my attention. I think there's a lot of wisdom to it. Both are wanting to get away from uh, anything but functional differences. Um, complementarianism says that there uh, indeed are created differences, that woman was created to be the partner of man. They must labor together in that way, but man is the head. Man's headship means simply that he is the family patriarch. Uh, there's other concepts there that we've lost today in terms of what, what, is a, what is a man's role with respect to his grandchildren? Is it simply to love on them and, and they love him? Uh, should his children be listening, seeking his advice? Um, should he have the freedom to be able to say, you know, you're doing this, I think I'd encourage you to do it differently. We don't really have much of that freedom any longer. So um, I, could, I could see patriarchy going maybe before um, we get rid of complementarianism. So you could you could see abandoning the term patriarchy because of the cultural freight that's been attached right. with the last. I could, 50 years. although then you got to realize it's used historically in literature yeah. throughout the centuries, and uh, thus it needs to be properly defined and not jettisoned. Because if you jettison it, then people read it, and all they're going to have is the wrong and negative connotations as well. It's a good question, Zach, and it's one I've been wrestling with I don't, for a year you know, and a half. It's kind of now, like so. I, I put it. This would be a related uh, category. My insistence on writing um, with uh, the uh, masculine uh, pronouns and mankind and man, because the Bible does, and I know a lot of Christian publishers now, you know, are are getting away uh, from that. But I think it's important that we recognize that the Bible is the one that establishes uh, these terms. And if we jettison them, then we are simply giving um, credence to the whole egalitarian movement. Dr. Piper, thank you for your candid comments. Israel, thank you for your excellent question. This is a big issue. And I know we, we put a lot of stuff out there today that would be worthy of follow-up. So if you have any follow-up questions, please uh, bring them to our attention. Or if you're listening and you have your own podcast and want to respond there, we'll probably hear about it. So <laughs> our next question comes from good friend Isaac Overton of Melbourne, Australia. And he asks, what is the biblical instruction for teaching elders when it comes to taking a day off once a week? Given all Christians, including teaching elders, are called to observe the Lord's Day as a day of worship and dedication to God, and the teaching elder works hard on Sundays, is there biblical grounds for a teaching elder to take an additional day of physical rest during the week? Or should he or they work six days Monday to Saturday? Is the common cultural practice of having Saturday off unbiblical? This is a good Very, very good question, question uh, Isaac. Um, first... The I know some ministers will say, well, I work so hard on the Sabbath that I should have another Sabbath. But in fact, our work on the Sabbath is Sabbath-keeping. And I, I grow most 
when I am actively involved in the Sabbath work of preaching, discipling, and, and pastoring. Uh, I think, though, that uh, every, every man and woman that would have a full-time job, or even the wife uh, who has a full, more than a full-time job at home, should have uh, time off. Uh, Bridges, in his book on Christian ministry, uses the figure of the, the bow must uh, be relaxed. If it's constantly kept bowed, then it loses its strength. Um, when we look at the fourth commandment, six days you shall labor and do all your work, we recognize that that does include our labors, but also would include our recreations, our hobbies, things we do around the house. You can't do those things around the house if you're not taking a day off. Um, you And so I think it's very important that a minister take a day off. It's important for himself. It's important for his family that he has this time to devote to them um, for rec rest and recreation, for getting uh, different kind of chores accomplished uh, around the house. I think that uh, there could be the, uh, there'll be seasons and times where uh, a minister is going to have to work uh, more fully six days a week in certain times of uh, serious responsibility. I went through a time like that uh, a few months ago uh, when I had some deadlines to meet in addition to uh, my regular teaching and administrative responsibilities. As to the day of the week, uh, I always took Saturdays off because when we got married, and this was long before um, homeschooling, I figured that my kids will be in school, Saturday will be the day off that they have, and so I simply disciplined myself to take Saturdays off. Now, I also would have nightmares on Thursday night if my sermons weren't ready. So I didn't want to take Saturday to be finishing uh, a sermon. Uh, but each man will do what's best for him. Some men take two half days. They'll take a maybe a half day for uh do something with their wife or a half day to work around the house as well. Ever how it's functioned, I do think it is very important that we keep our Sabbath by Sabbath labors and that we then build into our schedule uh, a different type of activity. It might You might be working out in the yard eight hours that day, uh, but uh, it's a completely different type of activity, also an activity you can focus on the family and, and their needs as well. So I don't know that it's, uh, uh, yeah, I guess Saturdays are the uh, probably common cultural practice in most vocations. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. It just depends on what's best for, for each family in their particular situations. But I do encourage ministers to, to take time off. You know what I appreciate about your answer, Dr. Piper, is you, you instinctively uh, almost instinctively anyway, it seemed to me, went to what is best for my family. Mm. And whereas Isaac, and I know Isaac's looking out for his family as a, as a you know, young pastor too. Um, we're very close and, and our wives talk almost every day uh, despite the time difference. Um, but, um, you know, he, even though he was asking, you know, for your own personal rest and, and just, you know, being able to decompress, um, but you instinctively went to what's good for the family. I think especially those of us with, small mm -hmm. children, 
uh, this is going to dictate the rhythms of our lives for at least a season, and um, and and we should embrace that and and really love on our kids every moment that we have out of the office or the study or, or what have you. Remember that Cat Stevens song, "Cats in the Cradle and the Silver yeah. Spoon." Yeah. Dad never had time for the sun, and yeah. oh, that's so sad. And then it flips and around, it flips at the around. End. Sorry, Dad, I don't have time. <laughs> Love yeah. you. That's yeah. poignant. Yeah, that's a heartbreaking song. <laughs> Uh, our next question comes from Ray Call of Mission to the World in Belize. And Ray asks, how may we characterize the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament versus the New Testament? Were believers in the Old Testament indwelt by the Spirit as, as are believers in the New? What was the role of the Spirit in regeneration? How are we to understand Pentecost as an expansion of the blessing and work of the Spirit in the age of the Messiah? Particularly, how does Pentecost fulfill the prophecy found in Joel 2, 28-32, that God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. And does that mean that all believers, i.e. all flesh, would then prophesy? Ray, you've asked a question. We should probably spend a whole hour yeah, uh, on answering a, it. No, that would be a useful podcast, to it, it a pneumatology be. podcast. So I'm going to lay some groundwork here, but yeah. I would like an opportunity to follow up on yeah, this. Yeah, that's a good idea. Remember that the spirit in us is the spirit of Christ. You remember that John says in John 7 that the Spirit was not yet given. I think that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in every believer is what is being promised in Joel chapter 2. And that could only happen when Christ was ascended at the right hand of the Father to send his Spirit so that Christ, because of the unity of the Godhead, personally indwells each of us by his spirit. Christ has a body. He cannot personally himself indwell each of us, but he can personally indwell us by his Holy Spirit. So he's the spirit of Christ. He brings us into this living union with Christ. Now, the reason I say that is what Joel is talking about. If you remember uh, when God gave Moses the, the uh, 70 elders, and they were to come outside the camp, and the Spirit came upon them, and they all prophesied. Was it 70 or 12? Anyway. Uh, 70. So there were um, two men in the camp who did not get out for one reason or another. Eldad and Medad. <laughs> and Joshua, jealous for Moses, said, uh, should I hinder them? And he says, no, oh, that all of God's people were prophets. Now, remember there, prophesying was the 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 um, the sign that these men had the Holy Spirit. And they never prophesied again, but it was merely that they had the Spirit now in a special way. So what Joel is saying is that, he, that in the days of the Messiah, every individual would have the Spirit in the same way that a prophet had the Spirit. So the Spirit worked particularly uh, in prophets, uh, in the Old Covenant, in kings, there was the anointing for office that includes special operations of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but Joel is not saying, nor is Peter saying then in Acts chapter 2, that all of us are going to uh, prophesy uh, and have dreams and visions, but we're all going to have the Holy Spirit in equal, same amount. And that's a glorious realization. Now, the Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant regenerated and sanctified, but not as the Spirit of Christ, not indwelling us and working out in our lives the fruits and benefits of the mediatorial work 
of Christ. He inspired the writers of Old uh, Covenant Scriptures as he inspired the writers of the New Covenant Scriptures. But he uh, was not permanently indwelling the people as the Spirit of Christ. And that's a very important concept, I think, to keep in mind, Ray. Ray, thank you for the question. I th- I've made a note to myself to follow up on this idea of having a whole episode dedicated to pneumatology. I think that would be a useful thing for our current uh, cultural moment here in the life of the church. And then our last question for today comes from Chad Warner of Simpsonville, South Carolina. How should we respond to those who beg for money or food in public, whether they come up to us or are simply present? Good question, Chad. Again, uh, Perkins uh, deals with this uh, in that same volume 10. One of his treatises is on vocation and work. Um, Two things. Begging is wrong. Uh, And we need to to recognize that, that that begging, as it's done in in our culture uh, or in Western culture, is, uh, is wrong. The person on the street corner with his sign, um, you know, money for food or whatever. Um, we uh, do not want to encourage that mindset. We don't want to encourage the welfare mindset in our uh, culture. Well, what makes it wrong specifically? Well, it's not the receipt of gifts because we wouldn't say it's wrong for a person in that circumstance to go to a homeless shelter or to go through a program which is largely driven by philanthropy and welfare? Well, it depends even on the programs, though. You see, uh, we are told uh, in Thessalonians that if you don't work, you don't eat. Well, I'm thinking of a program that would get you on your feet and, well, okay, and get you to work. Well, okay, that's fine. I said it depends on not yeah, all programs gotcha. are equal. That's all I said. Yeah, yeah. All right, I'm trying to give, get to some principles here. So it's because of Paul. Well, let's back up. First, it's found in the Ninth Commandment and in the fourth commandment the eighth commandment and the fourth commandment the responsibility to work and to labor paul then says that if you don't uh, work you don't eat now recognize that in old covenant you had people that were severely handicapped the man that was born blind the man that was lame Uh, these were people that were allowed to be particularly in places of worship uh, in order to receive the alms of God's people. Uh, These were not able-bodied people. Uh, But even then, I would say in the New Covenant, uh, our responsibility then is to care for these people through the church and through diaconal ministry. So um, we don't want to encourage this kind of lifestyle. Second, we don't want to be unwise stewards. This is why God's given us deacons so that uh, your heart breaks, you see this situation, and you want to do something. Well, you don't know. We worked with a family in California and discovered they had a Volvo parked three blocks away. Um, and uh, you, you don't know what really goes on in these things. In, in Italy, it's the gypsies, and they actually meet out who goes where. They often take somebody else's baby with them, so you'll feel real, really, really sorry uh, uh, for them. Most of these people are overweight as well, and they're on the corner asking for <laughs> money so they can eat. Well, I don't know about most of them, but yeah, more than you would expect, sure. Yeah, if you're really going hungry. But, um, and so I think that 
the best way to help the poor is through the church. You'll have the poor with you always, but the Old Covenant lays out then the church's role in dealing with them. And even then, there's to be wisdom. Uh, I learned this early on in the ministry. Uh, I had a couple come to our church in Mississippi, and uh, it was a heartbreak. That two children, a couple, the car was full of their clothes and stuff, and they'd been burned out. They were driving across country to get to some relative's house. And um, I managed, we had three churches, and we had a fifth Sunday service, Methodist, Baptist, and Presbyterian. We were the closest to the highway, and so I was the one that managed the distribution of those funds for diaconal purposes. So we took them into our house, uh, we bathed them, we got them got, uh, clothes and food and petrol and gasoline, and then went on their way. Well, later on, a friend of mine who ministers in the same county 30 miles away starts to tell me this hard luck story about this family. It was the same family. And they were going from town to town um, so that's when I realized that we had to, and so we established there, and then when I was in Houston, where it's even more important, a screening program uh, with a form to be filled out, uh, references, phone calls that needed to be made, uh, uh, meeting with deacons if it was somebody local, um, talk about uh, budget. So we would help people, and sometimes an emergency of their own you know, it was their fault, but we would help them pay the utilities or whatever, but then try to get into their lives with the gospel and with uh, some responsibility. So uh, we should help the poor, um, but we should do so with uh, wisdom and not give money to these people out on the street. I think that's very unwise. Now, you see somebody and you say, come and I'll buy you a meal. That'd be different. And you can sit down and talk to them then about their life, what's going on, why they're where they are, and, and can you do something. And, you know, we talked about our parish evangelism. One of the things we want to see our deacons be able to do would be to have resources uh, for um, job training and uh, even more basic discipleship things of budgeting and home planning and things like that, and then have doctors and businessmen and whatever that would be willing to come alongside the church and work with these people. So we could do a lot more than we're doing diaconally. Um, and I mean, this just occurred to me, and I think it's a beautiful insight into our Savior. It's deity. Uh, I was just reading this again. When the disciples rebuked probably Mary, it was Mary for wasting all that money on Jesus, and he, he would dare to say, you'll always have the poor. I deserve this. If one of us said that, it would be the absolute arrogance. But because he is the Son of God, he had every prerogative to say, take care of the poor later. She's taking care of me right now. That is a great note to end on for our podcast. And I thank you all for your questions uh, submitted for this round. That basically clears us out on our list. We do intend, or at least we have intended and haven't gotten around to it yet because of all kinds of craziness this summer, but intend to do a debrief of the PCA Study Committee report on biblical sexuality, which Dr. Piper and I are largely... We'll do that next... Uh, we'll do that in between faith and practice, maybe in yeah. a couple of weeks. Yeah, and so we'll hopefully get that to you soon, and I intend to have a couple of episodes for you and your enjoyment. Um, until next time, thank you very much for your attention and your time together here on the podcast, and God bless you. 
Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu donate. For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.